and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Hi, everyone. I would like to introduce you to our guest on the Path 11 podcast today. I have with me Nancy Dutetri, who is an attorney who became a trained psychic detective, spiritual medium, medical intuitive, and paranormal investigator. A magnum cum laude graduate of Princeton University, she is a frequent media guest. She also lectures to university psychology students and paranormal conventions and hosts her own radio show, Hot Leads, Cold Cases, on Para-X and CBS Radio. She has written a few books. Uh, One I had the chance to read uh, more recently called Psychic Intuition, Everything You Ever Wanted to Ask But Were Afraid to Know. And I really enjoyed this book because it really does bridge the gap between skeptics who can analyze but don't experience psychic phenomena and believers who, which would be me, who have the experiences but lack the ability to analyze. Um, And then uh, another book that she had written that came out back in 2015, How to Talk to an Alien, and a book explaining how extraterrestrials communicate with humans and proposes a method for translating alien language, which I find that to be fascinating. So we're going to get through as much as we can today. Uh, We may have Nancy back on to finish up whatever we don't discuss, but Nancy, I'd like to welcome you to our show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Yes. So uh, you have um, just quite the background in history, and I love the fact that you call yourself the skeptical psychic. And maybe we can even start there, because I think that just your name alone with that uh, describes really what you're trying to do to bridge these gaps, um, you know, between the two worlds, I would say, of the believers and the skeptics. Yeah, I mean, I think most people start out, you know, kind of locked into either one side or the other. Um, And usually a skeptic does not convert to a believer unless and until they have had their own personal experience, but they're not going to do it based on somebody's say-so or based on something they read. Um, So I I think, uh, at least in the psychic world, I'm a little bit unusual uh, just because I didn't start out that way. Um, You know, I I grew up in a very academic family. Um, They didn't believe in anything psychic. It was never discussed. They didn't believe in, you know, psychologists or psychiatrists. That was even kind of like way out there. Um, My father was a scientist, medical scientist. And um, so I didn't have my own experience until, uh, you know, relatively late and then I started to explore it because I didn't understand it and it was through my writing uh, that book Psychic Intuition that I began to interview all of these people who I never normally would have encountered or spoken to or anything like that because uh, as I discovered the scientists really didn't understand uh, and simply weren't interested in things that were uh, intuitive, subjective, uh, or psychic. Um, so I had to go and talk to people who like psychics and mediums and medical intuitives and those those kinds of people in order, because I knew that they understood the concept, even if they couldn't quite 
um, you know, develop it, or most of them, actually, I found out, weren't that interested in understanding why it exists. And for me, I'm always interested in understanding why something exists and how it exists. And it was through a process of uh, training, I actually sat in on a, uh, uh, well, it started out start sitting in on a psychic detective class, and uh, I was then it was suggested that I participate, even though I didn't want to. And I said, no, 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 I don't have any of that. You know, I can't do that stuff. And they didn't allow me to say no. So <laughs> I, I participated for, and that lasted close to a decade. And I sort of became apprentice to my teacher, uh, who is, she's a well-known psychic detective. Her name is Nancy Orlin Weber. And, uh, and that's how I began to understand from the inside how this stuff works. And since then, I've become also uh, a trained remote viewer. I've developed my own remote viewing method um, that incorporates a lot of my psychology background and intuitive gestalt psychotherapy, as well as um, my psychic and mediumship background. So it all has sort of come together in this really interesting mix. And I now know fundamentally, and I have tons of documentation that this exists. It's real. It's quite incredible. And I think it's so incredible that it's important for people to understand the reality of it. So that's been kind of the, the my my message, if you will, to to people. Great. Thank you for that. And, you know, in your introduction, I, I wanted to ask you this question. Um, you had said that uh, you know that psychic ability can be trained. Well, technically, I should say retrained because it's a natural human ability. Now, I have heard some people say that all humans are intuitive. They use the word intuition, but not everyone is psychic. And then when I read, um, you know, just like I said in the beginning of your book, that it can be trained. Do you believe that all humans also have the psychic ability? Or, or what's your thought about that statement, about everyone has intuition, but not everyone is psychic? Yeah, I love it when people start to make, like, um, uh, it, it becomes like a, a socioeconomic classification, like upstairs, downstairs, like, well, you know, you people down there, you don't really have that ability. <laughs> but, but we special people, we have it. No, 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 no. It's like, you know, if you ever do training uh, in mediumship or in psychic work in, in uh, England, what, one of the first things that you will learn is a pretty well-known uh, sort of maxim. You probably already know it, which is that um, all mediums are psychic, but not all psychics ha uh, are mediums. Mm -hmm. You've heard that one? I've heard that one, yep. Yeah, it's the same thing. Um, I don't believe that, not for two seconds. Everybody has the innate capacity to direct their energy in whatever direction they want to. Now, whether they, they choose to really work at being a medium, let's say, which is the ability to um, uh, contact or communicate with spirits of deceased humans, or whether they're putting their energy into reading the uh, the 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 energy of living human beings, 
it's where you focus your energy. And I believe that, and I, I am my own example. So I, I know that to be true. It's certainly, I know it to be true about myself and I've watched it with lots of other people and I've trained many other people. So yeah, I mean, some it's, they always use the, uh, the analogy of the, the piano or the violin, you know, some people are going to start out being what you would call prodigies. And some people are going to spend a long time training and they may get the technical aspect of it and not the emotional import of the music. And sometimes it's the other way around. But fundamentally, we all have the ability to have these skills if we if we really put our energy there. Yeah. So, I, and I wanted to ask that question really for our listeners, because our listeners might have heard some other guests say just the opposite. But I thought that it would be really refreshing for them to get another perspective, um, in case they were feeling like, well, okay, I know I have intuition, but I really can't do that psychic stuff, or you know, I'm I'm a medium, but you know, I I can't do this. So. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to ask that question. Um, and what I found really interesting about this book, and I've never seen anyone write about it the way that you do, you went into such depth in the different senses that we have and giving examples, um, you know, with all the different animal species. And um, I, I found each section very, very interesting. I learned a lot because, you know, like you say in this book, I'm really not, I'm more of the believer. I'm not the one that w would go out and do all of the research to find out you know, well, why am I sensing this? Why am I feeling this? Why would I even bother to understand about, you know, our sight and our smell and our hearing when I just already know it to be true? Um, I don't need to be proved that, but I found uh, the way that you broke apart each of our senses and then also talked about the sixth sense uh, to be just a different perspective. And it was refreshing and I really enjoyed it. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind maybe just taking us through those senses and giving a couple of different examples um, and, and why you decided to um, do that quite a bit in this book. Uh, yikes. It only took me like uh, 10 years to write that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I don't know that I can answer that question right off the bat like that. I mean, there are many, many different aspects. I just, I uh, have lectured on, on that topic. I, I do believe, you know, people always talk about five senses, and then they talk about that woo-woo sixth sense. And I write right off the bat that I don't believe in the sixth sense. I don't believe, I think that's a giant um, uh, grab bag into which people throw anything and everything that they don't understand. And uh, so what I do is I kind of open up that grab bag and say, you know, let's look at this and, and let's look at it from uh, a more logical angle. So um, I know that we have more than five senses, although we seem to only talk about our five senses and the five sensory organs. Um, but scientists generally accept that we have anywhere between 9 to 21 senses. They've been uh, sort of expanded in the last century or so. And uh, if you start tossing in, I mean, one of the, the things, in addition to looking at animal types of senses, you know, like um, the ability to... Um, uh, for example, thermoception, which is an ability, say, of snakes to, to image things by virtue of heat sensations. So if you imagine that you have eyesight, but it's based on 
what comes in through your skin or through your tongue or something like that, and it creates an image in your brain um, that's sort of similar to the language of vision. And that's how you perceive the world. I mean, so I, I explore the animal types of senses. And I also went and started looking in some uh, neurology textbooks and started to realize that there are all kinds of neurological disorders, which to me would indicate uh, the lack of a sense, uh, like the, I don't know, inability to, uh, I don't know, to, to feel satiated after you eat, the inability to um, hear music, the inability to locate yourself in space, the inability, I mean, there, there, there's just tons of them. Um, and each one of those to me suggests a lack of a sensory capacity. So I believe, and I've said this before, that I not only have I been able to identify at least 40 senses, but I believe that in the near future, we're going, it's going to be discovered that we have literally hundreds. So um, I think to talk about a sixth sense is unbelievably simplistic. Yeah, well, I would agree. And, you know, as I was going through each section um, with the different senses, too, it almost made me, you know, question really our own ability as humans. It almost feels like that we may even have the ability to touch upon certain senses that are not developed within us, but say like they're developed within the dog or the frog or the snake. Um, but we use such a small portion of our brain as well. Um, and it just made me wonder how much more we are capable of if we were able to, um, I don't know, tap, tap into that more. Are we really capable? Or are we just this structure um, that only has, you know, these X amount, but there could be much more if we had the ability to tap into it? I think it's a matter of where you put your focus. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's sort of what I've learned in my uh, transition from skeptic into a and I would say an experience, there's not a believer, it's, it's a knowledge at this point. Um, I think that um, if you, you know, if you decide you want to study something, then you expend your energy that way. And it's the same with this. If you decide that you want to explore this, and you leave yourself, you wipe out everything. You know, that's why I was talking about retraining, mm -hmm. you know, because we've gotten trained out of focusing on this kind of data that comes into our bodies. And the reason why we gotten, we, we've been trained out of it is because at a very early age, we start speaking language, for example. And language is sequential, linear, and because it's sequential and linear, um, it takes time, literally takes time for me to start this sentence and then to finish this sentence, okay? Which means that we begin to lose bit by bit our ability to experience the world and to communicate the world holistically, which is everything simultaneously. 
Okay? So, and, and a lot of this psychic work involves um, bringing in data that's coming in simultaneously and then making correlations that don't have an obvious cause and effect. You know, and cause and effect is something that we have been trained also since we're infants to experience, which is um, usually, and, and I, it's, it's sort of hard to explain all this stuff in, in a, a little nutshell here, but if you, one of the examples that, that I give is a, a baby when they're in their crib is gonna look up at a little, say a, a mobile, you know, that's got little animals or things hanging on it or colors above the, the crib and uh, the baby will see it, okay? So there's the, the aspect of vision, and they're going to try and reach for it to touch it. And once you put together, or the baby puts together the touch with the vision, they've cross-confirmed at least two senses. And, and once you get a cross-confirmation, that's part of your reality. So we have billions of cross-confirmations in the course of growing up. Our senses are cross-confirming each other. What happens if you get data that comes in that you can't cross-confirm? And the answer is you throw it away in a garbage can because you say, oh, well, that's fantasy. That's not part of our consensus reality. So um, we get rid of tons and tons of incoming data. And so the whole idea of when you're trying to develop your psychic ability is you start pulling that kind of weird, extraneous, unconfirmed data, and you pull it back into your your brain, and you start looking at it in, in new and different ways. Yeah, and I, I would say, too, um, you know, how you were talking about just, you know, the training, kind of immersing yourself in it. Um, I have found, too, that part of that process in trying to figure out what could be clairaudience, clairvoyance, um, clairsentience and stuff like that mixed in with my own thoughts and my own intellect is a bit of a. I don't know, siphoning out process to understand what messages are coming in, what are my messages, what are messages that are coming from outside, like you've talked about sometimes outside of the brain or something that I'm hearing within the inside um, of my body. And it really takes some fine tuning to understand and how to interpret the senses and the information that we're getting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. And by the way, I, I, Rarely, for example, with clear audience, rarely will I ever hear something with my physical ears. Right. Which means I'm, I'm hearing it with my, I don't know, my mental ears. Okay. Um, and and that's just the way you're you're talking about. That's always the danger. You don't know whether you have uh, imagined this, thought this. Uh, you know, whether it belongs to you, whether it belongs to something that you've tapped into, it's really hard to know. Um, and that's why I have spent so many years trying to get confirmations, because I want to know, is there a way to confirm whether that was a real thing that I heard versus did it mean anything in reality or was I making this up? Or was I really good at guessing? I mean, that's always the, the question mark in my mind. So I test myself all the time. And what I have discovered 
I mean, when I used to go to my um, my psychic detective uh, training, there were a few other women in this group, and because I was the skeptic in this group, um, you know, if I would get something, you know, I'd get a hit on something, and they'd say, that's terrific, good for you, and I'd say, oh, no, you know, I must have been guessing, good probability, or, you know, I figured it out, or somehow... And eventually, and I was constantly discounting whatever it was that I got until I got to a point where not only were the other students in this class laughing at me, my teacher was laughing at me, saying, really, Nancy, <laughs> you know, uh, you're going to try that one again? And I got to a point when I realized I would have to be an idiot, really, if I didn't start to acknowledge there was something else going on because it was happening too frequently. Right. But but that is that's a matter of for me you know in my process that's a matter of just training and and believing myself you know that it wasn't my material right and you know in in the book what I, I really appreciated how you went into more with the auditory hallucinations taking a look at schizophrenia and then also going through all of the other medical diagnosis where people will have um, some sort of auditory hallucinations whether it's with migraines or epilepsy and I think the statistic was something like 39 percent of the population all around the world has experienced hallucinations auditory hallucinations in yes. some way shape or form yeah. um, and but then you also went into uh, the research and and looking at the the brain matter of schizophrenics versus you know people who are also getting some more of these auditory hallucinations and the difference between the two. Would you like to speak a little bit about that? Well, I mean, the big question is always, you know, are psychics psychotic? <laughs> <laughs> so you got to really kind of sit and ponder that one for a little bit. Um, but but what I did, I mean, that's why I looked at, you know, the nature of a, a, a hallucination in any one of our five senses. And, and they do occur in all of our five senses, which I also thought was really interesting. Um, and what's the difference? How do you know the difference? And what I thought, you know, you were, you were talking about some of the, the auditory hallucinations that I was looking at some of the, stu the medical studies on us. And I made a point that most medical studies, by the way, of, let's say, schizophrenics uh, or certain types of people, certain types of psychosis, um, almost all of those studies are objective. They're observing objective phenomena or they're looking at the, uh, the material in the brain. Um, very, very few uh, actually... Uh, discuss the subjective experience of the person who's experiencing the uh, the hallucinations, and so I've managed to find at least uh, a few of those studies, and it was really interesting. And for example, I mean, uh, and I, you know, I'm sort of speaking off the top of my head now. I, I don't recall exactly, but I believe that um, a significant percentage of the schizophrenics, for example, would say that the voices that spoke to them were uh, negative or derogatory. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, that's kind of an interesting um, way to distinguish what most psychics are getting. Because most psychics are not getting, if they're hearing something with their mental 
uh, ears, as opposed to their physical ears, um, it's usually some type of information. It's generally not derogatory unless they've sort of bumped into, let's say, a negative entity, in which case it might be. Um, but that's sort of, that's one, one distinguishing factor, I think, you know. Um, and the other thing is that there are ways that you can take the data and then correlate it with something, you know, something else in our reality. You might be able to correlate it after the fact um, so that it's not just something that's, that's maybe just living in your head as, as part of your, your fantasy life. And I, we do have fantasy life, but one of the, the main theories that I am putting out there is that this thing that we call our imagination and, and that skeptics in particular and scientists in particular will dismiss saying, oh, well, that's just somebody's imagination. Isn't that sweet? Um, the imagination is actually a sensory organ in my view. And what I mean by that is that the data that we're, we, there are, oh, I think it's 11, 11 million or so bits of sensory data that uh, come into our body in every second of our existence. And we're only consciously aware between 16 to 40 of them, um, which kind of means that what happened to the millions of bits of other sensory data, I think that what happens, and, and most of them don't have a sensory organ t through which to be translated, okay? So they may not come in the, anywhere on our limited electromagnetic range of, let's say, visual perception um, or audio perception. So what happens to them? We still, we're influenced by them. We get the data, where does it go? I believe it, it is assimilated by our brain in this place that we call our imagination, where we assemble that information in the language of a particular sense. So for example, let's say, uh, I don't know. Let's say that I get bombarded with um, the whatever the 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 wave activity is of let's say I don't know. I'm, I'm going to toss this off. You know, let's say a car accident that happens, you know, 20 miles from here, and somehow I suddenly get that sensation, and. So my, I have no particular uh, sensory organ. You know, my eyes aren't going to see it. It's too far away. Same thing with my ears and, and my skin and everything else. But that wave data has been received by me. In my imagination, I am going to put it into the language of a vision. And so in, on my mental screen, I may experience bits and pieces of that car accident that I am nowhere near. Now, who's to say whether that was my fantasy or whether that was the receiving of certain data? The only way to know is to continuously test and, and uh, 
and check it out. Now, that's why I uh, kind of piggybacked on the, the old uh, Department of Defense uh, motto, um, or President Reagan's, they used to say, trust but verify. It's, for me, it's trust and verify. So you got to trust the data that's coming in that feels like your imagination. And, but then you got to verify it instead of saying, well, just because I, I thought it or I felt it, therefore it exists. Well, it exists in a certain, in a, maybe in a certain way, but maybe not within our consensus reality. Right. And, and the whole thing with verifying it as well is, uh, you know, not just once or twice. I think that's, that's the other thing that you were talking about when you were in those classes. It's like it eventually started happening to a point that you just couldn't deny that something was going on. The, what I couldn't deny was that I was able to pick up data that, that it was absolutely impossible for me to have picked up. And it was fairly specific. So how do we, um, maybe this, this might be a good turning point to talk about extraterrestrials, because if we are using some of these senses that we have, and people are having encounters with extraterrestrials, or maybe having visions or seeing them or encounters with them, or, um, you know, hearing certain languages, dreaming about them, how do we, how do we verify that, and that it's not just um, our imagination, like you were talking about before, or is it just our thoughts begin to create our reality? So if we've been exposed to enough things in the media about extraterrestrials or UFOs, and we have that in our consciousness or in our thoughts that we're, you know, creating this, how do we know this all to be, to be true? <laughs> well, uh, okay, so so in my book, How to Talk to an Alien, uh, where, where I do talk about alien languages, uh, I do discuss all of those issues. Um, one way, I mean, in terms of cross-confirming, obviously, is, is uh, well, plenty of people have had the, uh, let's say, uh, contactees or abductees have had the experience of... Uh, they, they may or may not have a memory of an abduction experience, let's say, or a contact experience, but there's certainly plenty of cases where suddenly they're showing back, you know, they're, they're back in their bedrooms, in their beds with uh, clothing on that doesn't belong to them or pajamas that are buttoned up backwards um, or, um, you know, maybe certain... Um, well, scars, blood, um, uh, strange markings. I mean, I've, I've had strange markings on me before. Um, do I have any memory of an abduction experience? No. Have I had dreams of alien encounters? Absolutely. Uh, lucid dreams. Um, is that verification for me? No, not particularly. The thing that came in as very strong verification for me, um, and I do talk about this in my book, is when uh, my daughter and I, who was in her, she must have been around, I don't know, she was in her late teens, and I don't recall exactly what, but this was in uh, 2011. Uh, we went to our local, local movie theater one night to see a movie, uh, which was coincidentally, let's say, uh, Woody Allen's movie about um, Paris, which is all about time travel. 
And we come out of the movie theater, and uh, for some strange reason, I've never seen this movie theater like that before, and I've been here for close to 20 years, um, there was nobody there. Uh, there might have been one employee, but there were certainly no patrons, which I've never seen that. Um, we go out into the parking lot. And there's a big mall there. It's next to a highway. And my daughter pointed up in the sky. And I won't bore you with the whole story, but uh, there was a uh, there were a massive orange, you know, 20 to 30 orange lights. And eventually I could make out the shape of a craft. It was roughly 500 to 1,000 feet up in the air roughly half a mile away, maybe a little closer, maybe a quarter of a mile. And uh, it was in the shape of a boomerang, not a triangle. And uh, it was the size of a football field. And eventually a large orb, maybe 15 to 20 feet, came out of that and went searching around, went behind the craft, redocked, and then the whole thing um, either cloaked or dematerialized in three phases. And thereafter, my daughter and I, uh, and she was panicked, by the way, um, we began to receive uh, interruptions in our phone calls for the next year and a half from a very weird uh, electronic-sounding, male-sounding voice with a ton of uh, sounded like distortion in it. Uh, speaking a language neither one of us could understand. It would interrupt our call. Neither one of us could hear each other, but we could both hear it. And it would speak in things that felt like sentences. It once said my daughter's name. And um, I, she eventually had one or two of her friends hear it. And I had somebody I was uh, doing a reading for, a well-known psychologist. She heard it. And... Um, in fact, she said, whatever the hell that was, that was not of this earth. <laughs> she had to email me because every time after we would get these interruptions, um, we wouldn't be able to, uh, it would hang up both of us. And then we wouldn't be able to contact each other by phone, usually for five or 10 minutes. So this psychologist actually sent me an email because we couldn't talk to each other because we couldn't call each other back. Um, Anyway, so that went on for a year and a half, and that sort of started my interest in alien communication. Um, and you asked, you know, well, how do you verify that? Well, um, it's difficult. Uh, the fact is that my daughter and I both had that experience together. It generated an emotional reaction, particularly for her. Um, I wanted to see what this thing would do. I was absolutely fascinated. Um, and we both heard the voices. So, so there were a whole lot of ways that she and I could both confirm and, and these other friends who could also confirm. Um, people said to me, well, why don't you take a photograph of it? And I don't know. I, I don't have a clue. I probably had my iPhone in my hand. I did not even, it didn't occur to me to take a photo. And I've had uh, many discussions with friends and colleagues who also, they would keep cameras by their side for that purpose because they were, you know, uf into ufology and were out there sort of hunting for UFOs. And I do believe it's a form of mind control. It's more complex, I think, than we 
are normally capable of. Um, but I think that it's a way of making sure that that uh, that information remains somewhat mysterious. Yeah, and uh, the hair on the back of my neck kind of stood up a little bit when you were telling me about um, those phone calls because I've been on the phone with some people, and specifically my dad, um, <clears throat> where something similar to that has happened. And I think I always passed it off as, oh, it was probably just some sort of wave signal with, uh, you know, some sort of 18-wheeler truck that, you know, <laughs> must have, <laughs> you know, gotten into the phone lines or something. And um, But the other interesting thing to that, we were, oh God, a couple of years ago interviewing um, a woman who does channeling. And as she was channeling, I mean, everything got so distorted and this noise and this this, these other, um, I guess you could say it sounded like there was another person, like in, there was interference with whatever it was. And, uh, it was, it was just really odd and we couldn't quite explain it. And then it kind of stopped and it went away. And I think our Skype connection dropped and then we had to reconnect with her. Um, and it, it was, it was kind of, it was freaky. <laughs> like you said, I don't know how to explain it. And, you know, when people ask you, well, why didn't you take a picture? I'm sure also in that moment, you're just trying to, you're, you're in such a moment that you're observing and trying to figure stuff out. I don't, I think it's, I don't think taking a picture is probably the first thing on many people's minds, unless you're really, like you said, people are having the, those cameras beside them and making sure like, okay, if this happens, take a picture, take a picture, take a picture. But if, you know, here you are coming out of the movie theater and that happens, it's, you know. Well, even, uh, uh, and, and by the way, and you had given me my, my intro, I, I don't, I no longer have my CBS radio show. I did it for several years. Um, but I can tell you that, uh, when I have during that show, uh, and also during, uh, private readings that I do for people, uh, there have been many, many, many instances where everything, and, and it's always at a key moment in the conversation. Always. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and it's very relevant and the mm -hmm. Skype will completely cut out or uh, it'll start to go sort of a little wonky and then it'll just drop. But it's always a very, you know, and I could give you tons of examples of those. And of course, in the beginning I thought, well, okay, so Skype's a little unreliable, um, <laughs> you know, but, and, and yeah, it's got definitely got its moments. And of course, I mean, we're dealing with, you know, technology then, and we are subjected to certain types of, you know, calls getting dropped or interference on things. In the old days, you used to have, uh, you know, uh, third-party callers that would suddenly, you'd be suddenly eavesdropping, you know, on somebody else's call in the middle of your call, and you wouldn't know why. Uh, so that stuff exists, but this is, it's way too connected with the conversations if you look at enough of them over time. Um, so, so I totally understand that. I was going to say something else, and now I forgot what it was. That's okay. Um, I know that we're, we're running close on time and I really would love to have you back um, to talk more about the language with the aliens as well. But maybe you can give us a little, little bit of a teaser to that. Like, what is this language and how do we learn how to communicate? Um, I know some of the um, information that I was also getting from your website and other areas, it almost appears that some people have channeled certain symbols or the language of aliens that kind of looks more like hieroglyphics. Um, 
and, you know, just trying to understand like, what is that? And, and what is, what is your book about a little bit? And maybe we can bring you on to have a more in-depth and longer conversation about that. Uh, another big question. Okay. Um, the, okay. So how to talk to an alien. It's a short little book. Um, it's, it's pretty easy reading. It's not like psychic intuition is actually much more dense. And, and to me, it's more complex, but people, I guess, because pe- people seem to have issues about, you know, aliens and do aliens exist? And is it all some big, you know, figment of whoever's imagination? Uh, it's been a little tougher for people for whatever reason. So what I do, I'm, I'm, uh, trained in several languages, uh, French, German, and Thai. So I have some familiarity with a bunch of human languages and, um, because of sort of my backgrounds in each of those, I could sort of figure out, you know, for example, because I, I know some German, I can understand some, some Yiddish or some Dutch. Um, so, so I'm a bit familiar with a bunch of different languages. Uh, and that's, so I decided to take sort of a comparative linguistic approach to looking at languages of aliens. And so when I looked at lots and lots of case histories where people have talked about that, people generally don't talk about it too much because it's usually people get overwhelmed by the experience of, oh, my God, there's an alien versus, gee, I wonder what language they're speaking or, you know, breaking it down. Um, the, the most common thing people say is that it's sort of the psychic approach to analyzing anything, which is, well, I just knew it. Oh, it was just telepathic. Come on, everybody knows that aliens, you know, use telepathic communication. And the answer is sometimes yes and sometimes no. Do they speak human languages? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Do they speak alien languages? Yes and no. Um, so I try to look into each one of those areas as much as possible. You've got also verbal versus written. Um, you've got symbols versus alphabetic. Uh, there, there are actually pictures in the book of uh, different writing samples of people who are allegedly channeling different types of alien languages. Most of them have had direct alien contact um, and then seem to be communicating in whatever this format is. Um, so I go into a whole lot of depth on, on those things, and, and they're not just all things that you would describe as sort of like Egyptian hieroglyphics there there it's all over the board yeah it's just at first sight that's kind of what it reminded me of but yeah. here's here's a weird thing <laughs> um, so usually when I am interviewing my guests like yourself sometimes I in order to maintain my concentration I'm a doodler too right so I'm kind of like feeling the person's energy and sometimes I'll be just drawing certain things now yeah. I have not gone onto your website until, you know, this week and preparing for this interview. And what freaked me out a little bit was the sample writing on your website, talkalien.com by Dr. Christopher Vigiano. Vigiano, yeah. All right. Okay. I got it. Um, And I kid you not that many times when I am drawing and I would have to go back to some of my notes because it may actually be correlated with the guests that I have on my show who are talking about extraterrestrials. Much of the doodling, there's lots of dots. There's 
kind of things that look more like arrows, um, things that are in this sample writing. I'm like, oh my gosh, not that I have drawn anything that looks like that, but the striking of the lines and these small little circles all over and intersections of um, triangles and little, you know, squiggly lines and things like that. I'm like, oh my gosh, what the heck have I been doodling? <laughs> And what, you know, and then I see something like this and I'm like, well, okay, whoa, wait a second. What's going on here? So, um, it's, uh, I don't know. It's freaked me out just a little bit and it's, and it's very unconscious, you know, I'm just kind of using my hand to keep concentration. And then if a question comes up, I'm writing a question down, you know, to ask my guest, but, um, this is why I want to have you back on the show, because I need to take a look a little bit more into this book, get a chance to read it and do a little more research on some of this channeled alien writing, because I have been doodling some things that look very similar. I think that's fantastic. And by the way, I have a whole section where I talk about the dots. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Oh, my gosh. Um, and, and you have what I found really interesting was you've got uh, dots that are affiliated with many different human languages. And you've got dots that are affiliated with a lot of these um, alien written languages as well. Um, things like arrows, you know, you could potentially, I mean, there are many ways to associate that, but but right off the top of my head, I mean, that would be more of a Sumerian type of a, a, a thing. Um, the, the little sort of, uh, arrow shapes, or it could be more of a, a Nordic runic type of a, uh, a shape. Um, and then once you see, see, what, and, and just to kind of leave you with this also, I mean, what I have, I, th I think I say it somewhere in, in the book. Um, well, for example, let's see, how do I say this? You have if you look at something as dry, let's say, or as analytic as a writing sample, you, it's like you can, it's like archeology. span You're working forensically. You can work your way back into all kinds of really interesting information about the people who wrote it based mm -hmm. on the style, the shapes, the, the organization, all that kind of stuff. So if you look at the language of aliens, you will likely be able to learn something really interesting about them. And the example that I gave, by the way, aliens have spoken to contactees in many different accents. So I look at the issue of accents. And if I say the same thing, uh, and I've used this example before, well, now, if I'm just talking like this, then you have some idea where I might come from. And then if I were to talk like this, you would have a totally other understanding. And, you know, or if I was going to talk like this, you know, each time I'm saying something, you're getting a different bit of information about my origin, my socioeconomic background, uh, uh, something uh, about the way I express myself, each time you're getting, there's a lot of data in there that people don't even think about. Exactly. I mean, without you even saying, just with those different accents, I'm like, okay, from that person's from there, from there, from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm a little blown away. I'm a little freaked out. 
<laughs> um, well, that's all good. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. It uh, makes me think that I should probably continue to keep my little doodlings and use that as a little bit of my own data and research because we had a guest on more recently um, who had uh, really a near-death experience um, when she was very young and is just like a really sweet being of light and all the work that she's doing. And I could not stop drawing during her interview. And it was all of these little dots, but lines that almost like connected the dots, but there was a pattern and it was almost like so orderly, like an OCD type of thing, but it was beautiful by the end of the conversation, you know, and I was just like, wow, what did I pick up there on this person, you know? And, um, so yeah, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to, uh, have a little more of my own research and, uh, you know, just continue to doodle. And, uh, it's bringing me more into this realm of research of what's, what's going on with this communication. Is it communication? Am I just, uh, becoming an artist? I mean, who knows, but, um, I find it fascinating. So I'm, I'm so happy to have met you virtually here because you you're opening up some doors into my life that are, um, I'm walking through it with curiosity, I guess you could say open-minded curiosity and skepticism. I'm there you go. By that. I mean, yeah. thank you, because that's the greatest gift that you could give to me. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. And really, I would love to have you on again soon um, after I get a chance to uh, read that other book. And I'm going to be doing some of my own research, too, into some of my own doodles and this language before we maybe have you back on so we can talk more about that. That would be great. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Great. Well, thank you so much for being a guest uh, on the Path 11 podcast. I really appreciate it. You were awesome. Um, and I, I just can't wait to have you back. Aw, you're so kind. And I really, really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month, and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation, or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four day, four day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out of body experiences and life changing experiences that I was able to bring back, uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today.